Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is a new one to Real GM Radio, but not a new one to Real GM, and that is Keith Smith, my former colleague at Real GM who now works for Spotrack, Celtics blog, and then he does the front office show, podcast slash YouTube show. And we have a really fun conversation going through kind of how we each have been not only processing the 22 offseason, but also how front offices work, the cap spike, or no, sorry, revenue increase that may be coming in 2025 or thereabouts, and a lot of other stuff. A really fun podcast, well over an hour, a lot of great substance here. And it is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code for a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. And yeah, I think I had a lot of fun with this. I hope you will as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. You and I have known each other for years, and yet it's it's good to, to kind of talk in this form as opposed to the other ones that we do. And I, I think the place to start, I'll open the floor to you, and if you want to seat it back to me, because you have to think about this longer than I already have, Um, is, do you have any kind of like broad scale, bigger takeaways from the offseason so far? Um, I, I think the kind of the theme for me was flexibility. I, I think teams tried to keep flexibility for the best part as much as they could within season, whether that was let's uh, avoid the tax, let's avoid becoming hard capped. And then long-term flexibility, I think a lot of teams are positioning themselves to uh, make runs maybe in the next uh, year or so as the cap continues to go up and and uh, contracts seem like they've relatively stabilized um, and those kind of things. So I think we've got a lot of teams that are, are really trying to put themselves in positions to be uh, flexible to pivot in whatever direction they want to be versus uh, necessarily locking in and then within that of course you had the handful of teams that are basically saying hey now's our chance we're going to load up and go for it like boston milwaukee denver uh the clippers those types of teams i I think uh you know which is good to see because i think the league feels a little more wide open than it has felt in uh, uh, a number of years it does and the ripples of having two teams that are at least two that we that were very injured last year they expect to be in the mix so it's like okay the warriors and the celtics are still going to be there and the Celtics you know added Brogdon they'll they'll I mean and age related progression and everything like that I think they'll I think they'll be good and so but then you add in these other teams in the mix and you get the hypothetical of well where would last you know where would a healthy Nuggets team have fared last year where would a healthy Clippers team have fit in last year and, and that all of that fitting together is going to be absolutely fascinating um so I I wholeheartedly agree with that and there's also like this idea and this will tie in with something I'm going to get to in a second that broadly speaking I think teams are meaningfully better run now than they were like, I mean, if we want to go back even like 30 years or 20 years, where the the idea being that there's a theory behind what's going on a vast majority of the time. Sure, there will be moves, there will be overall strategies that I disagree with, but it's not like a couple of GMs or owners know what they're doing and then they just bludgeon everybody else because everybody else does has no idea. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I did a an article for Spot track which was identifying the 10 worst value contracts of the offseason and it was really hard to find 10 uh the, this year that used to be a very simple
simple exercise <laughs> to go go find 10 of them. And now it's a far more difficult uh, thing to do. And I think what is interesting is what one of the ones that uh, maybe the most head scratching contract for me was DeAndre Jordan. And it's a minimum deal. So who really cares? It's it's not that that big of a thing. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it is one of those things now where teams are just so much smarter about the way they lock in and even the ones I disagree with like, like I, I don't necessarily love the Bradley Beal uh, contract but I understand it I totally get why Washington is there uh, there's very few where I look at it and I am struggling and uh, ultimately you know searching for someone to explain to me why it made sense right and along those lines like I have been lower on Marvin Bagley than a vast majority of people and Troy Weaver is higher on Marvin Bagley than than I am but I and, and I think that the overall kind of like getting a bunch of bigs who can't shoot for the Pistons isn't something I love but it's like <laughs> it's not an indefensible move I think it's an overpay but it but again like we're within like if you think about it as like standard deviations from the curve like we're, we're not as far off as we used to be you know and and some of that is just the nature of like who is free agents also that there weren't that many teams with cap space so the the capacity for like what happened in 2016 just wasn't there like there there weren't teams just sitting out there going crap we have this money here you go Mozgov here you go Evan Turner like that it's a fundamentally different world but at the same point nobody was doing that yeah absolutely yeah no that that's that's it I those are the three deals you mean Mozgov uh, Evan Turner and then Luol Deng those are the three that are kind of still you know here we are six years later and those are they're kind of the ones we're still pointing to as you know yeah nothing like that happened and that just kind of makes me chuckle a little bit because it it's true where we're not in a position where where we're sitting uh, with those kind of things now and I think even the teams that are are let's say you know poor teams rebuilding teams or just straight up bad teams they're no longer I think fully feeling the pressure of we have to go sign player x because we have to try to win more games this year I think there's more of an acceptance for a no it's if we're bad it is what it is as long as there's some uh you know theory here as long as there is a plan you know then we can live with this and i think fans in general have gotten better about understanding those things and i think teams have become a lot more transparent about explaining those kind of things to their fans as far as hey here's what we're doing here's what the goals are versus kind of you know hinting around it nobody's coming out and saying look we're trying to be terrible we're going to lose as many games but they say it in a way that makes sense and i think fans buy into that and that makes it a lot easier when you do kind of take that rebuilding path it does and there's also the element that as long as it's not forever following a rebuilding team can actually be pretty fun you know as long yeah. as it's as long as it, you know the the extremes of like the process sixers and some of those other yeah that can be tough like if you're obviously going to be bad you're going to lose a lot but you could say like for example the houston rockets like the rockets this year i'm not expecting them to win a ton of games but they have players that if you're if you're a rockets partisan even if they don't win a lot of games this year you're going to see a lot of Jalen Green you're going to see a lot of Jabari you're going to see a lot of the billion for rookie scale guys that they have yeah. over the last couple of years and so you, you know you don't necessarily want to be in that boat for five years and just kind of see it all stagnate and, and there will be times that the players that you think are going to rise are going to be the rising tide just aren't like it can happen it will happen somewhere but that like 
like there is there is merit to that approach and like you you brought up the idea of kind of teams getting more okay with it and I, I know one closer to your backyard like that is the Orlando Magic and like the Magic were in this boat they were in this mold for a while of you know like being in in the like playoff mix but not really making a lot of noise you know they did win they they won some, won some games and everything else like that and then they sold off some of those players got a pretty significant return for most of them and then now they're building up the coffers again and and Paulo looked very fun in summer league and hopefully Suggs can have a better second year than his first year and again that's as a fan base like it's a pretty good place to be yeah absolutely I, I can tell you here in Orlando Orlando's a little bit of a weird place there's there's not a lot of people from here sure um which is is very different there there are um you know so many transplants like myself I, I grew up in Massachusetts and and moved here and and there's a lot of other people like that so it's been at times hard because the magic become kind of well they're the local team that's where I can go to watch NBA games um but and then it is all right well when they're good we'll attach to them and people do get behind them now that is changing as uh you know uh, people like my daughter grow up and and people slightly older than her they they grew up as magic fans so that is changing there is a you know pretty good um core group of fans but what's very interesting is people were super excited when they made the playoffs a few years ago because it was the first time they'd made it in several years but then when that turned into all right are we going any further the next year and that got kind of ruined by the pandemic and the bubble season and all that but by the time we were in that third year and it was like all right maybe they can keep pushing to be a you know in the playing mix i think people were like all right but it's never going to be better than that we're always going to be somewhere in the seven to ten range with this group now people are energized and beyond excited to see this team and that's I think a credit to them because they were very forthright, uh, Jeff Weltman and John Hammond with, here is our plan. We're going to build through youth. We're going to build through the draft. We're going to try to you know, re-sign players when we acquire them and all those kind of things. And, and I think that's very important because they were out there right from the front, um, right from the start, rather, selling this plan to the fans and getting them on board and getting them excited. And now everyone is. Everybody, you know, I, I know more people who are Magic fans that are way more excited about this team than they were the team that made the playoffs two years in a row. Right. And it, it makes some sense. And what you brought up in terms of like, where does it go from here? I always think of as the line of delineation, where if there is a reason, maybe it's because you have young players or you, you know, you could change your coach or something else to think we can actually win a playoff series or maybe even two or three. Like that is that is really exciting. And tearing that down without a good reason is frustrating. But I've long believed it, and there are there are owners, there are general managers who vehemently disagree with me, um, like Ted Leonsis, for example, that <laughs> the being in the mix for the eighth seed, just I, I think of that as personally as a fan, the least fun place to be. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, like Kevin Pritchard coined the term, I'm working on a piece about this at the treadmill of mediocrity. And like, that's how I define it is like you're and sometimes those teams even like my, I had this criticism of the Spurs the last couple of years before now, and I will heap praise on them in a second of that, you know, like where your best case scenario, if we're being honest about it, is losing in the first round. 
Like it's it you, you know maybe there's a five percent chance that you break through and you get that win maybe because the other team has an injury or like you play really really well and then you get knocked out in the second round. I I just I personally like and, and you know I'm a fan in, of sport of teams and other sports. I personally don't love that. You know like the like in, let's say in baseball like you're a wild card team but then you're probably not going to like make the champion the league championship series or the world series. Like I mean it's it's fine. They're like you know in individual seasons there are worse places you can be. And so I'm thrilled to see teams push one direction or the other. And the Spurs are a good example of that. And then the other one, thank you, Danny Ainge, is the Utah Jazz. Yeah, absolutely. I think Utah, uh, it, well, I think one of the things that's important, too, that I always say with this is I think it's insulting when you hear people throw around things of that fan base can't stomach a rebuild. Agree. It's so insulting to fans. I think as long as you have an actual plan and it goes somewhere and it's not a 10 year rebuild because that's not a rebuild, that's a failure. Um, then I think fans are fine with it. I think as long as you can sell a plan and I, you're you're spot on with Utah because I think what well, we're sitting here now, right, and we're, as we record this we're still waiting on a donovan mitchell trade which is bananas here in the beginning part of august um but where i I feel like that is going to happen eventually and i think this is danny ainge doing what he did twice in boston which is hey we're gonna tear this down where we're and we're not gonna go part way we're gonna tear it down as far as we can we're gonna get everything we can and we're gonna start all over we're gonna start basically from scratch as much as is possible for a non-expansion team and we're gonna move forward that way and i think that's good and and i see now my interactions with jazz fans seeing them interact with their beat writers and that they seem more kind of energized and excited about what might be uh versus all right another year of we're a good regular season team and we're out earlier than we wanted to be in the playoffs and and i think you know having that that uh courage and also that uh willingness and that support from ownership to say let's turn that direction that's huge for a franchise because if you have an owner that's going to say to, to your point, which there are still a couple of, nope, let's just compete to get in the playoffs every year, then probably your ceiling is just getting into the playoffs every year. Yeah, unless you can, through that process, get the get the star that can be the best player yeah. in a series beyond that. And that's, and that's harder to get. Like, that's a part of the point you're making, is that it's harder to get those players when you're never getting the pick equity and you're, you know, typically you're spending a lot of money so you don't get that kind of flexibility either. Like, it's actually, it's actually more likely that you will get that next star by going in one direction or the other rather than being in the middle. And along those lines, something else that, and I think fans, as you mentioned, are getting more discerning, that makes what the Spurs and the Jazz chose to do more palatable is that they got very strong returns for their star players that they've sent out. And we'll see what the Jazz get from Mitchell, assuming a trade happens. It has not as we're recording this. But, you know, in my opinion, the Jazz got an absolute haul for Rudy Gobert. You know, they got Walker Kessler, who's, who's already there, and then unprotected picks in 23 and 25 and unprotected swap in 26 and then uh i then there's also 27 and 29 like so 29 is lightly protected and so like for for them it's you know that's that's a lot of equity and then the hawks i think they got three firsts for Dejounte. and so not only is it like okay we moved in this direction that we probably should have moved in anyway but we got a lot to do it and there also are some models now 
and the Celtics are at the front of this line of teams that did this and it worked. And it's something I think about a lot. The NBA is, we think of it as a copycat league at the top because it is, but it's also a copycat league at the bottom where the idea is that if you think about how other teams have succeeded and then you go, well, can we do something like that? And there's no guarantee that, I mean, it's far from a guarantee. I, I expect the opposite in the in the near term that the picks Utah got for Gobert are going to be as good as what eventually became Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Like that's ridiculous. Like that is a top tier outcome, both in terms of the selections they got and the players they eventually chose. But the idea that having a lot of equity in another team's future can work out really well is a useful thing for like kind of selling your owner, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I think that worked for Boston was uh, clearly through some player acquisition. I think Brad Stevens came in as maybe a a, a better coach than anybody thought he would be initially uh, right out of the gate. They ended up being better, faster. Yes, I think anyone could have guessed. But then what was what was kind of fun during that period was they then what what I was calling they outsourced their tank because they were able to be good and their picks could end up in the 20s, which many of them did, because they had all these other really good picks coming from Brooklyn. Now, I I don't necessarily expect that to happen with Minnesota because I think they're younger. I think they're more built for at least near-term sustainable success than that Nets team was. I think Danny Ainge, in a lot of ways, read it correctly with the Nets of, yeah, we're trading you older players to add to already older injury-prone players that you have. Um, And it all fell apart on Brooklyn in spectacular fashion um, and, and delivered great picks to the Celtics. But that's that's the thing is you can be um, because when you have all this extra draft equity that you're kind of sitting on, you can be um, you can kind of say, all right, well, if we get good quick, um, we can can lean on that and be good moving forward because we're going to get this other good stuff from somebody else down the line, uh, maybe, or at least we're going to have extra stuff have a to chance. work with down the line. Exactly. And and I think that it could potentially, we haven't seen this too much yet, it could tie in with lottery reform where you're not necessarily asking for the Hawks or let's say the, the what the Pelicans have from the Lakers. You're not asking for them to be one of the five worst teams in the league. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, it can happen. It's not super likely. But if it's the, you know, they slight, things go slightly wrong and it's the 10th worst record and then you have a, you know, a, I don't know, I can't remember the odds that well, but like, I don't know, a 15% chance of getting a top four pick, especially if you have this unprotected, that could end up being awesome. And like, and that's, a, it's a path there. And so having that be a little bit more balanced can work out well. And I think that also ties in with something that is going to loom over the remaining negotiations. And by that, I mean the Donovan Mitchell trade stuff and potentially KD and or Kyrie, especially KD, is I like to think of the Paul George trade in particular as kind of a perfect storm where it was a team that had extra resources, primarily from the Tobias Harris trade, that had a clear urgency to do it because Kawhi Leonard said, I'm coming if you get Paul George. And so you had this absolute haul that went from the Clippers to the Thunder. And while I think the Clippers overpaid, I I under like kind of like we were talking about before with contracts. I understand the overpay because you're Mm -hmm. in some ways you're getting Kawhi Leonard for what you paid for Paul George. Sam Presti had a hilarious amount of leverage in that circumstance. But there aren't teams right now as we're recording this that I think have both of those both of the elements there, which were a, a resource 
that, like, you know, like this bevy of picks, especially if you have some that aren't your own, because that makes things easier, and a motivation to put those chips in. So, like, there are teams that have one of the two, like the Pelicans, like the Oklahoma City Thunder, but they don't have the second. Like, this is not the time for OKC to throw in for... KD or for Donovan Mitchell or something else like that's it's not the right it's not the right place and you know Houston has all these Brooklyn picks which might be getting juicier incidentally through a Kevin Durant trade and and so what happens is I think that the Nets saw the Gobert trade and you know and you could say Drew Holiday and all these other ones went well I mean Durant's a better player Durant's on a more you know even though he's older he's on a you know you could say comparatively he's on a better contract and so it changed their sights And then the other thing that shifts things for the Nets is the status quo, assuming Kevin Durant isn't going to pull a James Harden, is actually pretty palatable. Like, it's not a circumstance like the Jazz. Like, you could argue that the best best thing that could happen to the Brooklyn Nets is keeping this all together and being in the mix next year. Yeah, absolutely. That's why this one is... I whenever people ask me, you know, why hasn't a Kevin Durant trade happened? And it's my answer is always, well, it's really complicated. (laughs) It's hard to trade Kevin Durant because especially when the market to some extent got thrown out of whack with the Rudy Gobert trade, because if you're the Nets, it's hard to take back less. But it's also you're you're in a position where all right, well, where are we going? And I think that becomes easier to answer. Where we'll find out. I mean, there's all sorts of reporting out there that Kevin Durant is meeting with the Nets and these kind of things. And if that turns into hey, we'll still stay open to a trade, but I'm going to be there and I'm going to be ready to play. Then if I'm the Nets, I'm going to look at him and be like, all right, well, if we trade Kevin Durant, it's probably in our best interest to say, all right, well, let's see you know where we go from here. And you know, I. I know we owe some picks to Houston in the future, but that's, you know, sunk cost. And, you know, maybe we figure out, you know, a different way. And we almost look like we did after the Boston trade. But if Kevin Durant's back, they're what, probably top five, six, seven team in the league, assuming health and uh, other things. So that that turns into a whole different story. And that's why it is so complicated with that one. I also think, too, your point of teams reading and saying, is it the right time? That's also, I think, a place where teams have gotten a lot better at is saying, all right, you know, it felt like for years for me watching as a fan. And then even early on when I was covering the league, it turned into all right well we did the rebuild thing and now we're in year two of this rebuild and it was a really bad year and all right we got to start moving things forward because everybody's going to lose their patience now it feels like teams are like no we're not ready yet we're we're gonna you know let's funnel minutes to the kids let's give them roles let's keep going with this and that feels like it's a very big difference uh versus before where it was like uh we, we gotta go we, we gotta move up the ladder quicker than this and i think that's where teams are are reading the those uh, uh, trends, markets, whatever you want to call it, a little bit smarter and saying it's not time to cash in just yet because we're, we're going to hang on and we're going to go. And then, you know, again, then you have a, you're always going to have the one or two. Minnesota did it this year and kind of cashed in and said, hey, we want to make this a sustainable thing. But I fully get it for them because this is a team that's made the playoffs twice since Kevin Garnett was traded in 2008. So well over a decade. That is a, or I guess 2000. 2007 he was actually traded um so that is a whole other thing for them is hey you know maybe 
being in the playoffs and giving ourselves a chance to climb up the ladder, that's a whole different world for them to play in. So that's where you can kind of look at it again, going back to what we said off the top. It's maybe not the direction I would have taken, but I at least understand why they took that direction. Agreed. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that like one of the instructional examples there, and it's funny because like, you know, Nate and I have been recording long enough that we've talked about it. And I mean, I wrote for Real GM long enough too, is thinking about the way that the Pelicans responded to Anthony Davis being awesome. And so they, you know, the, what happened is Anthony Davis, number one pick, we all thought he was going to be really good. He ends up being great. The response was, okay, let's get as good, let's get good right now. And so they had the, no, they had the sixth pick in the draft that year and got, they eventually traded that and a few others for Drew Holiday. And then they also eventually got Omer Ashik as well. And what, and, and Drew Holiday was young. Like Drew Holiday was a, was a, was a, a good young player, you know, kind of mm-hmm. more in the vein of what the Hawks did with DeJounte. But being impatient, focusing more on Anthony Davis's pre-prime rather than his actual prime was simultaneously like understandable but also the wrong decision because a he's under team control and he's going to get better but also when you when you short circuit that process there's no way to replicate it other than incredible drafting or signing like it's you you can't manufacture that a different way you know building up those draft picks getting that equity because of the way the soft the soft cap works because of the way players are available if your picks become worse if you burn a bunch of those picks to get established players, you're never getting them back. And so you need, as well as Drew Holiday played for New Orleans, you need all of those things to work in order for it to be a real success. And I think that's something teams have learned from a few of those missteps. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned the Pelicans, because then I think about when they traded Anthony Davis, they almost repeated it, but almost too preemptively, because they traded Anthony Davis They at the point that they knew, all right, we're going to get Zion in hell issues you know aside i think they rightly read zion's going to be awesome when he plays but then it was let's try to be great right now and it was let's spend a lot of money on jj reddick let's go trade for Derek favors let's do all these things and this all happened before we even saw zion play a game and i think then it was you tried to do too much too quick and they got now zion getting hurt obviously didn't help things but they did get a little stuck there for like a year or two where it was all right now we got to kind of work around this because you know what Derek favors isn't great with zion he's just quite frankly he's not great anymore anyway and we have uh uh you know jj reddick starting to slow down and all these things that happen with them and that's that's where it, it's that it's that threading that needle between you know is it time or isn't it time i also think there's a point too where and i made this point in an article on spot track is you got to be careful of having too much of a good thing and i use the thunder as the example here where it sounds awesome to have a hundred extra draft picks until you got to start using them all yeah. because you can't trade them. And and they ran into that a couple years ago when they were trying to move up in the draft and they couldn't because everybody was like, I don't want this Pistons pick that's either never going to convey or when it does finally convey, it's not going to be any good. Um, you don't want to trade the actual good picks you have. Um, so they just got kind of stuck. Now they did it this year. They were able to send, I think it was what, three firsts, right, for, um, for the pick that they got uh, with the next trade. 
But then you look at their roster construction. I'm, I'm looking at their roster right now. They have uh, 15 players on guaranteed contracts, um, plus, or I guess 16 on guaranteed contracts now. So you're going to have to cut a guaranteed player, not the end of the world, but they already had to do that with Isaiah Roby earlier this year, who I think is a at least an interesting young player. They're going to have to do it again uh, in a year or two when, when more of these draft picks are coming home to roost. And everybody says, well, you can just overpay you know send a million picks but they found that out boston found that out too when they tried to move up a couple times of hey you know it sounds good that you can send here's 20 picks but if they're not 20 really good picks (laughs) nobody really wants them so that's where you gotta have this balance and that's where i think uh yeah we'll find out what the jazz do when they you know if and when they ultimately trade donovan mitchell are they going to be the next team to put themselves in that spot because they're they you know the one truth we know at least today under the cba that remains you have 15 standard roster spots and that's it every year so it doesn't matter if you bring in seven you know good players via the draft you're going to be sitting there looking at that plus the, all the players you have from the prior year and saying all right somebody's got to go and that's where those really difficult decisions start coming in and that's how you end up losing I, I hesitate to say good players are real difference makers but at least interesting players for nothing like the thunder did with isaiah roby like the thunder did with roby and you also eventually it's mostly a good problem but you run into the question of all these guys are going to eventually get raises and yes it hap- it can sometimes happen quickly and that's the other huge problem with a slow rebuild and the Thunder aren't necessarily there, especially if, if Shea can have a healthy year, I like Lou Dork quite a bit, is if you have to, if you get into the extension negotiation window, or even restricted free agency, and you're still not exactly sure either how good that player is, or where they fit into your team, it can be really thorny, because then you're like, well, crap, because those are the, those are contracts that can turn sour at some point. It's like, oh, well, you know, they haven't been good for us, or maybe it's even like you let go, and then all of a sudden you just didn't, you f- didn't fully appreciate what they could be and so those are both frustrating for for fans for everything it's like oh we let this guy go and then they were good and i mean like again the how they're gonna deal with darius Baisley and ty jerome like those guys are extension eligible right now they're restricted if you make them qualifying offers next year but there might be a chance with the volume of players that okc's bring in and some of that is that some of those guys have worked out you know like you got a lou dort and so lou dort's taking a starter spot a roster spot from one of you know from somebody else whether it's a rookie scale or a second rounder or anything like that and also like for example this year if we're talking about you know the thunder being better they had so many roster spots and they were kind of close to the tax that they're not using the mid-level i don't think mm-hmm. there was anyone they could have used it on but it's again it's sure. like they for they they had to forego an opportunity to add somebody justifiably so because where was that person going to play but you know it's again it's like they they sacrificed that just like when they traded i think that was 34 and 36 for 31 something yep. wild <laughs> like that when they got robinson Earl. It's like, those are the types of deals that happen sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to say one quick thing, too, because I think Boston is instructional here, where there there was this fear from the fans of they're going to trade Romeo Langford, and what if he ends up great? They're going to trade Aaron Neesmith, which they did this summer, and what if he ends up great? And I think the reality is, if those guys end up great, how do you pay them anyway? Right. Because you've already got Tatum on a max deal, you got Jalen Brown on a near max deal, closing in on what will likely be a max deal you've paid marcus smart you paid robert williams uh just those guys together you're already there so i look at it as maybe those guys do end up popping but getting malcolm brogdon getting Derek white 
Um, Derek White obviously was a big part of getting them to the NBA Finals. Uh, now they hope Brogdon helps them take the next step, obviously. But it is that's the the risk you have to be willing to take. Is maybe these guys will pop and end up great, but we hope what we traded them for lifts us to where maybe those guys would have got us to. And that's that's what you have to be willing to do because yeah, that was the point I made probably a million times. I even I remember I wrote something for Celtics blog years ago when I was like, let's let's look ten years down the line, and it's the best case scenario is all these guys are awesome, and now you have the most expensive team we've ever seen, which is kind of sort of what's happened with the Warriors. Not exactly, but it's yeah, when you hit on all these picks, that sounds great. But then you then when they all need paid, then it starts turning into whole other things you have to factor in and consider eventually anyway. Along those lines, there the other and I'll be it's funny because I'm not the biggest fan of Kobe Altman all the time. I think he's made some things I really liked and some that I didn't. That as another lesson, I then the Cavs are a great example of this, is that being optimistic about the players that you have should not prevent you from taking who you think is the best prospect even if they Mm -hmm. overlap because think about what would have happened if the Cavs saw Colin Sexton's rookie year and said well we shouldn't take Darius Garland even if we think Garland is the number one guy that is available to us so think I'll run through the players that the players that end up being taken immediately after Darius Garland Jarrett Culver Kobe White Jackson Hayes Rui Hachimura Cam Reddish and <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> it's tough. And I mean, some of those guys could end up reviving themselves, sure. could end up doing doing it like Jackson Hayes really showed some stuff last year. Hachimura had such a weird season. But I, I mean, Ainge with Tatum is another great example of this. And it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes your board is just wrong. Sure. But the lesson to me with the with the Garland pick is if you think a player is best, then you hope for the good problem, but you don't expect it. Like until I like I've always said you don't draft like the only time that I wouldn't draft over the top of a player, it's on the ends of the positional thing. So it's ones and fives. If you already knew and underline bold knew that player was great and that they wouldn't fit together. So mm-hmm. if you have, I don't know, if you have like Ja Morant and then the best part, but even then I wouldn't step outside of that too. Like that's just the way that I've I've always approached it. And and so in generally speaking, when teams have done that, it's worked out. But when they like, I mean, there was a story with that with Josh Jackson, if memory serves, where it was like part of the motivation for taking Josh Jackson was that the um, the Kings didn't want to overlap with, was that Fox? I guess it was. Oh no, no, no. So Josh Jackson was with the Suns. They didn't want to overlap with their point guards yeah. who they all who then ended up leaving like or yeah. trading away and, and so I, I think that's a part of it plenty more to talk about with keith but first a message from betonline.ag betonline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports contests and events with first to market odds and lines find reviews and news of every league including major league baseball nfl nba nhl combat sports esports and even golf BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all of your sports information from live in-game betting, props, and futures. So use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. It's fantastic. So again, head to the website today or use your mobile device to join, make your first sports bet, and use that CLNS50 promo code to receive your 50% welcome bonus and tell them you came from us. So check out Bet Online, where the game starts. The other thing I wanted to talk about with you is, I, and, and this I think is going to be 
my instinct is a lingering story for the next couple of years is the diminished value slash utility of cap space. And there are exceptions, but you know, like I think the Knicks as of right now are pretty happy with how they did with getting not only Jalen Brunson, but also Isaiah Hartenstein. And then they were able to, you know, get Mitchell Robinson on top of that due to his low cap hold and bird rights. But there are a couple different reasons why this is the case. So one, free agent classes have gotten weaker, not only in terms of the names, but also in terms of what I call the practically available names. So like you could say, for example, this year, Beal, Levine, Harden, in some order, probably the three best players to hit unrestricted free agency this year. From what we can tell, none of them really considered any other destination. So yes, they were on the market, but were they really on the market? No. So that's one one big factor there. So it's hard to improve. The other one, and this, I was thinking about it this morning when when we were working through uh, what I wanted to talk about with you, is how that part of it affects the other part, which is the value that these cap space teams can generate as facilitators. So whether you want to think about like the Jimmy Butler deal, or any number of other ones over the last few years where it's like team a really wants player a but they need something to make it happen team b doesn't want the players that team a has how do you make this work and it's by using another team typically one that has cap space but if there are no players on the on the market that those teams are you know moving heaven and earth for then the cap space teams don't have the leverage they used to have yeah, absolutely. I, I used to be a big believer in uh, push for cap space all the time, just because it's going to give you the most optionality uh, going into to an offseason. And now it almost feels like it's not as bad to be sitting on, as long as they're not bad contracts, sitting on some money because teams aren't as opposed to, uh, well, that guy's get an extra year because they think everybody realizes we can just keep moving players. And some guys, you know, we, we've seen it. Some guys become, they're, they're almost uh, mercenaries through trade because they just keep getting traded every couple of seasons. And then I, I think it used to be too is, the, to your point on the free agent market, it used to be, all right, you, teams would look at it and they'd say two years from now, uh, LeBron James is a free agent, going to start everything we're going to do for the next two years is going to be around. We're going to chase LeBron James in free agency. And we saw, I think, a little bit of that happen with a couple of teams uh, in the last couple of years, like with Giannis, for example. And then Giannis signed an extension, and then those teams were left with, all right, what do we do? Now that's where you've got to be ready to pivot and ready to go into whatever the next thing is. We're going right into that, and off we go. Because if you're not, you're going to get stuck. And that's what I think the the extension rules changing enough to make signing extensions a viable thing for a lot of players um, has changed things. And then to your point, it's that actually available because I kept going through when people would say leading up to this offseason. All right, tell, tell me who the best available free agents are. And I would say, OK, well, I'm glad you said available because technically this guy's a free agent, but I don't really know that he's he's necessarily available. And that's where I would take a handful of guys off the list and and that's where you know this year in a lot of ways i think truly the best available free agent was probably jalen brunson and jalen brunson's not even for me an all-star tier level guy um as far as free agents go so that's where it becomes you know hey what what are we gearing up for um if we save all this cap space because what are we going to do yes you can be facilitators yes you can be um you you don't have to always you know i repeat this you know ad nauseum 
You don't have to always use cap space in a trade in a signing. It can be used in a trade, but those are pretty few and far between that those actually go down that way. And I think there's almost no better lesson. And now they're not trying too hard to get guys, but we have two teams here at the beginning of August sitting on basically $30 million of cap space each, which that never would have happened uh, as recently as a couple of years ago. Cause if nothing else, they would have used that as uh, taking on money to help facilitate a trade. And now teams are just finding other ways to get that done. They're finding other ways to get that done. And also, and so you think about how this can change. And so one part of it is, and I, I've written about this a little bit and want to do more, that there aren't as many teams desperate to clear big sums of money. Some of that is because there are these aggressive spending teams that aren't doing that. You know, like, for example, if the Clippers were owned by somebody different, first of all, they wouldn't have everything they have. But secondly, like maybe somebody like Luke Kennard, you'd be like, okay, Luke Kennard is functionally costing the Clippers, I believe, more than $50 million. If you want to think about it. And I mean, sure. I don't think about it this way because of the idea that everyone contributes to the luxury tax bill evenly. But trading Luke Kennard theoretically into cap space would save the Clippers, let's call it something like $50 million. It might even be more than that, um, given how deep they are under the tax. So that, you know, that would be very valuable to certain teams, but Bomber doesn't care. And so you have that group that's getting out. Then the other thing is there aren't that many other teams that are deep in. You know, you'll have the Blazer. Like, I think the Blazers are going to clear a couple of guys to get sure. under. And you're going to have... You know, there there are all these teams that are like three and four million, and so do that. But also, like, but the question is, are they going to give give up real assets to make that happen? No, I don't think they are. And like, I was just working on a piece with Will Guillory about the Pelicans, and there will be a point, whether it is this off season or next one, where moving Devonte Graham makes a lot of sense for them because they're so close to the tax. Like, theoretically, if they if they had done that this year, if they had been able to trade him for nothing, they could have used the mid level exception again. Mm-hmm. I don't know who it would have been partially because this region class is so bad. Similar story next year but next year that could be you move Graham so that you can retain either Hayes or Nance and like if you think those guys are better then you could do that hopefully you can find another backup point guard so you'll have those sorts of circumstances but the Pelicans for that privilege they're not going to give you like a really good first round pick or something like maybe they give up a late first that they knew what it was going to be and it had the you knew what number it was going to be so it didn't have like that real upside of what happens the next season but even then I think you'd, they'd be trying to get a good player back if they were going to do that like offloading 10 million dollars is not worth that in the modern climate. So one part of it is, how will that change? And I guess it could change by teams that were deeper in not wanting to be that way. That could change, but there aren't that many of them. We kind of know why they're there. Like, you know, maybe it could be something like Boston. They just, you know, it'd be better for them if they could shed one to $10 million players and anything like that. Also, generally speaking, those teams don't have a lot of guys that are simultaneously expensive and not important. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the silver bullet when it comes to like cap space trades is like this guy's making 15 million and he's not in our closing five or any or like you know boston situation is a little bit different like they could never be in our closing five like there are times brogdon and and all these other Derek white and all that it'll, it'll work out sure and and so like those sorts of circumstances can't happen and that that was kind of the way that it that it could occur but it, there aren't that many of those right now but so so like what i was thinking about is well how is this going to change and i think the place to start as you brought up is with the extension system and so extend part of the reason why the free agent classes are so bad is that these players are extending rather than waiting and full credit to them i mean like a lot 
lot of them, you know, like every once in a while there'll be somebody who I'm sure they wish they hit free agency and or that, that they hit free agency instead, and that's fine. But generally speaking, I think it's working out. So the two ways that can change is so from the team side, teams could become more reluctant to sign, especially non-premium players to extensions. Like we're seeing a lot of these, you know, like John Conchar and Kenrich Williams or, you know, like Lou Dortz wasn't an extension, but in many ways it kind of was because they didn't have to do it when they did it or Jay Sean Tate. So teams could get more reluctant. They're saying like, hey, we're committing a lot of money. Maybe that would be some of those unnecessary deals turning sour. Or like the one that I used for a long time was like De'Aaron Fox. Like De'Aaron Fox getting a 25% max a year early. I I liked De'Aaron Fox. I liked him then, but it was like, did you, is he really, does he have the equity to say like, I'm going to do this? But the counterpoint is like, he probably would have gotten an offer sheet in that range anyway. Mm -hmm. So one is from the team perspective. The other, and this is where I think it actually changes, is from the player perspective. And the reason there is the new national TV deal where, I mean, we, I don't think what changes in the cap is going to be as extreme as what happened in 16. But, and I was stunned that we didn't see more of this this year, that there, the incentives are, we, we don't know how they're going to shift, but we know they're going to shift. And like, so if I were advising players right now, I would say it's better to sign a shorter term contract if you can get out in 25 or 26 than like, so from a player perspective, if you're good and you think your value will hold at least reasonably, don't think of a three-year deal as significantly worse than a five-year deal. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think there's going to be two big things that could change the way these extensions work. And one you you hit on for sure is the the new TV money. I think we may see much like we saw uh, a few years back. We may see some guys look at it and say, yeah, I'm going to do a little shorter because I know and have confidence that my value will hold, that I can still get a max and get get you know that massive massive amount of money i think the other thing that i'm very curious to see because i think there's just so much going on around it and hearing adam silver mention it several times over the last uh you know couple years really is what happens with trade requests and demands inability to trade players are they going to tweak something in this next cba where if you sign a four-year deal there's no trade for year in years one or two or something like that is it yeah and and i'm wildly speculating here i'm not you know i have no idea but is there going to be something like that put in um to the cba that makes players a little less likely to say "Eh, i don't know if i want to lock in for five years then maybe i'll do two years or three years or something like that and does that kind of re-energize the free agent market year over year because guys aren't necessarily looking to lock in for so many years um that that's those are the two kind of combinations of things that i'm really interested to see what changes there i don't i I don't know that we're going to actually let me rephrase. I feel really confident we're not going to see a massive cap spike like what we saw in 2016 because I think everybody realized all that does is get one free agent class massively overpaid and then everybody else kind of falls into line later. But I do think it's going to the cap is going to continue to go up and up and up um, where I do think we may see some guys say, yeah, it's not a spike where it goes up by 20 or 30 million, but it's enough that I'm going to start planning here in the next year or two to make sure I'm, you know, whether 
it's I'm directly a free agent or I have some sort of option that I can get out of my deal and be a free agent and do that. And I think we may see some teams do that as well, um, where we may see probably not on the max guys because it's super duper rare that we see anything like this happen. But on those kind of mid-range guys where all right, you're going to make between 15 and 20 million, we're going to make that last season either a team option or some form of partial or non-guarantee so that way we can have a little bit of flexibility if we want to play um, in the free agent market when everything uh, expands greatly. It's a great point. And from the team perspective, I mean, you could even look at, well, none of the contracts worked out the way they hoped. Like the Knicks got out of the contracts that they signed over the last couple of years that didn't work out super well pretty cleanly. Like it didn't yeah. take too much to get off of Noel and Burks and even Kemba. Like the Kemba deal, like it depends on how you assess. They gave up a lot to get rid of Kemba, but if you think about the all the Pistons deals as being connected loosely, yeah. like maybe it was the like, hey, if we need this for you, let us know. Like that sort of that sort of thing would be notable. But so like and and it's also it, worthwhile that Evan 48 did not get traded so that was probably a little harder they gave him an extra year you know the he he had leverage he was a better player and all that but so yeah i think there i think there really is something to it and the i agree with you that the spike if that the increase will not come in the form of a spike because the constituency for it is going to be a little bit different and now everybody knows that that's going to work i think what happened Mm -hmm. last time as i've heard parts of it is that the way the proposal that the owners gave to mitigate the spike was so owner friendly that the players are just like no and i think that both sides have learned from that that the owners need to make a better offer and then the players have as you said it like you know it gets certain players rich it doesn't do others but i i, I think to sorry to interrupt go I ahead think one thing that's really important is the players and owners whether that be adam silver and um the uh, tamika i think it's tremaglio I, I think is how you say it um but the head of the players association that relationship is now far better than it was back the first time around right where now they have that faith of hey we're working on this together we're i i, I like to say we're we're trying to figure out a way to split this big old watermelon between us versus trying to split a grape between us anymore. Like, like now we've got this thing and it's, you know, hey, if we split it right down the middle, which largely, you know, in very layman's terms, that's roughly what happens. We're all going to be pretty good, but let's make sure we're taking care of all, you know, 500 players versus taking care of the, you know, 50 to 100 uh, real meaningful free agents in one year. And I think that's different. I also think, you know, it's awful that we had to go that way to get there, but working through three pandemic impacted seasons together to make sure everybody was taken care of the best way they could and everybody still got paid and the cap went up uh, more than any of us could have projected that this uh, a year that's all stuff that leads me towards they're going to work together on this versus working against each other this time around yeah yeah it's a uh, the negotiation having a different tenor is extremely important because as you said it's dividing up it's dividing up a really a really big pie and that's both easier easier to do but also difficult because like i i think in some ways the pa part of it is harder than the league versus pa part of it now and so mm-hmm. like that and 
that in many ways is easier to negotiate, but like the structure of everything. And yeah, as you brought up previously, the, are, are there going to be some tweaks in terms of when a player can and cannot be traded? We know that with these Supermax deals, you have a year restriction, but there are a lot of other wrinkles where you don't, where it's more like half a year or something else. And there could be some potential solutions solutions there. Players aren't going to want restrictions on movement. But the other thing that I'm extremely encouraged by is... It's unlikely, as I see it, that there's going to be a lockout or, yeah. I mean, it could be a strike because these these issues are so much more solvable, especially with the amount of time they have to solve them, than the, we need a lot more money than we're getting because that's what leads to lockouts and strikes. And mm-hmm. basketball, like, I think they can, I, it's, even though, I mean, for me, at some point, the players, like, quote unquote, des- like, they deserve to, I, I thought it was more fair when they had a, the portion of the pie that they did before a couple CBAs ago. But I think the the point with it is like, yeah, it, that's probably true. Like, I'm sure the players would rather have 54, 55% than the, the 50, 51 they have now, but it's still a whole lot of money. And is it worth losing half a season or a whole season for it? Especially when the general understanding is that lockouts end up working out for owners instead of players because they're richer. Like that's just the, that's just the way <laughs> yep. it works out. So I, I think that I'm optimistic about that. And the rule of new CBAs is that there will always be unintended consequences. They will always try to pull up ladders and they'll leave down other ladders. And that's just the way this always works. And it, that's never going to change. But I, I am, for me, the big question that is looming, and I think part of why it hasn't happened yet is because we don't know, is we t- like people like us talked about 2016 coming years ahead of time mm-hmm. and roughly speaking that's going to be 25 it could be 26 depending on how all this stuff shakes out because the new television deal isn't negotiated because the new CBA isn't negotiated we're dealing with it as this looming thing that we don't know and i think that's how the players and their agents are and teams are seeing it too like you know that's the way we're but i think what's going to be fascinating over time is that uh, for me ayton is a great example here so it seems like a part of the awkwardness the acrimony in those negotiations was the sons not wanting to give ayton a fifth year Mm -hmm. and i believe that in normal circumstances that is a reasonable approach especially if you think that ayton's contract is more in lines of properly paid than underpaid, because theoretically, if you're underpaying a guy, this is what's going on with the Cavs and Sexton right now, reportedly. If you think a guy's being underpaid, you want to pay him for as long as you can, mitigating risk if you need to. But if you think a guy's overpaid or properly paid, you probably want to shorten it up to get to mitigate the risk for you. So with Aiton, there's this idea that the Suns kind of, and presumably this came from Sarver, wanted to, a four-year deal for them was more preferable than a five-year deal. And I'm not the biggest Aiton fan. I, I think that he, I appreciate the improvement that he's made. But when you think that that fifth year would be the 26-27 season, getting him locked in for, let's call it, $36 million a year, I think fighting that as a war instead of it being like a like a, a more fluid preference might end up looking like a mistake because it might be like well crap like that's league that's like the 12th starting center in the league money rather than like the fifth starting center in the league money yeah i i, I think so and i'm with you on that too because i think the other challenge is 
you're also looking at it and saying, well, what do, what do we have on the books and what are we likely to have on the books uh, that that year? And now we know now they have uh, Devin Booker um, extended. It, right now that projects to be about $58 million, which e- even still looking at some of these numbers, even as often as I do, it still takes me a minute to – is that right? Did I make a typo there? Because we're now single-season salaries, you know, $50, 60000000 million. Um, but then that's it. Now, even if you project and say, all right, well, Mikhail Bridges, we'll probably try to keep him around too. We'll, we'll be there. I think that's probably going to be post Chris Paul at this point, but it, you know, more, more likely than not. So then, all right, well, we'll probably replace that. But to your point, you start looking at that and saying, all right, well, what will that number be? Well, when we get there, it, you know, are we Devin Booker locked into this kind of salary at $58 million? That seems almost kind of absurd right now um that's just such a big number but that might be the fifth or sixth highest paid shooting guard by the time we actually get to to that season now that could be where we're at and that's where i think this year really instructional was people overreacted and went crazy about jalen brunson was going to make 25 million dollars average annual salary i believe that would have placed him between 12 and 15 of point guard salaries this year and if you look at it i think it's reasonable to say jalen brunson maybe a top 15 point guard in the nba um you know you, you might have him a little lower maybe some people have him a little higher but i don't think it's absurd when you start looking at it in that context and that's where um it's i try to i get sticker shock too when i see some of these reported deals but then i try to go back and i try to look and place it into or where does this fall in the overall context of position of team of makeup of what was available of uh, this offseason well what pressure are they under those kind of things and more often than not i find myself coming back and saying yeah the player did pretty good but you know what the team did pretty good here too I agree. And there will be a shift. I don't know when. So I think it's going to be when the money actually kicks in. And so like these teams have become so comfortable giving out like four and five year extensions. And then what's going to happen is at some point, you know, the money's the money's going to keep keep rolling in and all that. I don't know when it's going to be. It might even be like 28. It's going to be a long way out where it's like, oh, no, like that. That might (laughs) not have been the best idea, (laughs) but it's going to be. But again, the the, those chickens aren't going to come home to roost for a while. And this is something I talked about with Nate when we were doing offseason season grades there's like so when we were talking about before about like the like signing extensions and what could change it is another reason why teams have been aggressive signing these extensions is that even when some of them have turned let's say more negative generally speaking the team that inked that extension has not been the one that suffered so the mm-hmm. best example for me with that is russell westbrook yep russell westbrook signed an extension that turned sour but the team that suffered those consequences was like the third set of hands that touched him after that extension and Westbrook is an extreme of course not only in terms of how quickly it turned but in terms of how many times he changed teams beforehand and there are a bunch of reasons for that but you can think of like Rudy Gobert and so the shorthand that I've been using which is not what I would use if if a team gave me the reins and I was a general manager is if a player's contract looks reasonable for the coming year and ideally the next year teams just don't really care beyond that 
Like, that is pretty much the way this works. Like, so I talked about this when the Rudy Gobert trade happened. It's like, Gobert, you know, 30 years old, and so right, but he's, you know, defensive player of the year caliber. He's, I, I like to refer to him as a heliocentric defender, where, like, he can be your system. And that is incredibly valuable, especially in the regular season. So paying him, you know, $38 million for next year, $41 million for the year after that, it's high, but it's also reasonable. Like, it's in the reasonable range, if as long as he stays healthy, which he has. You know, 43 million 47 million after that eh, eh, we'll see but i don't think minnesota really cared too much about that and you could go through various contracts over the, over the last couple of years and so from a team perspective you think okay as long as we're smarter than the teams we're negotiating with as long as we know that player better than they do we'll be okay and so that makes them more comfortable taking on the risk of a big deal yeah i completely agree i i think it is i think what you said of teams looking at these extensions as almost stay for us this is the next couple years then you just have to be right and you have to be ready to move the minute you're like eh, it's starting to turn a little bit you just have to be ready to go if that's you know where it is now even if Danny Ainge felt that way on Rudy Gobert let's say the Jazz made it to the West Finals and pushed the Warriors to seven games or something maybe we don't see a Rudy Gobert trade because sure. maybe then it becomes a little easier to say uh, the deal might be turning but I, I can't tear this down now fans will have my head if i do that because we are right there and that's where again it kind of goes it's 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 tough because i think the jazz could have brought rudy gobert back they could keep donovan mitchell keep the basic tenets of their team they probably would have been fourth fifth sixth in the west again and they probably could have been that for the next three years i think it's that that saying that's not where we want to be that's a little bit harder than saying eh, we're seven eight nine ten you know, that's a, far easier because nobody really wants to be that. Right. But when you're fourth, fifth, you start looking at it and saying, all right, well, you know, one team in front of us has that season where the wheels come off injury wise. And then one other team just isn't as good as everybody thought. Now we're right there. And then one injury. And now we're there. You know, we're, we're playing for a title that we didn't necessarily expect. But I think it is, you know, good from Utah's perspective to look at that and say, yeah, it's not, you know, we, we've done this now. This was year, what, three, four, five of this. You know, where were we going to go? And I see, you know, unfortunately, I can see a couple other teams maybe hitting that that point where, like, the team I'm kind of curious about where they go moving forward is Dallas because I think Dallas has – maybe a little bit painted themselves into somewhat of a corner here. Luca is great. Pay him, you know, I know he's getting the max, but you could have paid him twice that and I would have been fine with it. But what gets tricky, I think, is you get locked in with a couple other guys. Now you're in a position where Maxi Kleba needs paid. Mm -hmm. Christian Wood needs paid. Uh, you're already paying um, Tim Hardaway Jr. for a couple years. You start to get into a position where, all right, that's great. Pay all those guys if you're in the West Finals or if you're pushing for a title but if you're sitting around the middle of the conference again and what where are we going with this because then it starts to be or we locked luke into a bunch of guys who are good but they're not quite good enough uh for the next few years and that's where you start to see players i think attitude starts to become uh what are we doing here where are we going because i don't want to be fourth fifth every year i want to be first second i want to be fighting to get in into the finals each season and that's where you know that's where it gets very very hard because i get it if you're dallas you got christian wood for nothing a bunch of players 
players who were expiring contracts and it doesn't it's not there but I do wonder would you have been better off without that question if Christian Wood is just Christian Wood again that's a in the new market that's a probably 17 18 million dollar player it is that the best decision for the Mavericks knowing what else they have on their books I I don't know I'm just not necessarily sold that that's where they should go but that's what makes it interesting is you have all these teams looking at it and they're they're all kind of prioritizing different things as far as well we do think this is where it can go and maybe that is what they needed to lift them you know one more step uh beyond where they were I you know well, we're gonna find out but I'm just you know I, that's what I've got my eyes on is where are we going with this the, that made me think of what I think is kind of the thing we can end on which is so essential and it's you're tying back to the very beginning of this we talked about how front offices are generally better run and you brought up a couple of different teams and where they are is that not exclusively but by and large i think front offices are doing a better job of self-evaluation than they were before and self-evaluation is so important and like you brought up i mean it's it's easier in some ways for a team like the jazz that was just living there you know like they so utah one, if we're counting full seasons, because there was, of course, an abbreviated season, they won 48 or more games for six consecutive years going into this offseason. That's a lot. But also, they never made the conference finals. So, like, you see, you can see how those how those things run together. And La Murray had this great thing about teams that, like, are in the mix that many times and then don't break through, which was very interesting. Mm-hmm. But so... Yeah, that was like, good. So you have... But but generally speaking, and, I, you know, we brought the Spurs before, we brought the Jazz, and, I mean, and teams that I've criticized, you know, like, I have the Bulls over the last couple of years, a few others, and the Bulls are better than I thought they were to their immense credit, especially with DeRozan playing so well. The the idea, because remember, you're not, you don't get to play out the season and find out where you actually would have been. You have to kind of see where it is and make your best guess and everything else. And so I think that it's not perfect, but teams being better at saying, okay, this isn't a playoff opportunity. And I mean, the one that I always hammered was O'Shea with the Blazers, where they made a conference finals, but they weren't a top four team in the league. And then they kind of kept it together and then they never got back there again and now they're in a different phase and things are you know i i i'm actually pretty happy with the offseason they had but there are a lot of ways to be wrong there and typically it's being too optimistic where you see the things that went well for you the previous year as signal and the things that didn't go well as unrepeatable noise like mm-hmm. oh well, we had some injuries we're not going to have those injuries this year player x had a wonderful second half and had a bad first half so it's all the second half that's the only thing that matters and so i i think that it helps and it it leads to a better distribution but what's fun about that is i i think that there is a better distribution and i think that this you know that is a real lesson from the from these last couple of years however those evaluations my instinct is are going to be really hard this year especially with the teams coming back from injury because especially in the western conference the bars to de- like defining success are going to be so incredibly high yeah i i, I use the grizzlies as my test case for that last part where I say regularly Memphis might be just as good and they might be fifth next year in the West just because there's going to be so many good teams and it, it they may you know, or win five, six, seven, eight, ten less games than they did but play almost just as well. It's just, you know, 
Clippers are going to be better. Denver's probably going to be better. Like these teams are going to be better. And that's where you, you, you know, it's, I think it's, it's hard. I feel like for so many years, the league was divided into here's the maybe four teams realistically can win the title. Then here's a team of a, a tier of about maybe 10 teams that are kind of in the mix. If everything goes right or something goes wrong with one of those other four, then there's a whole bunch of teams that are, they're a mess and they're rebuilding and they're awful. And now I feel like it's more of, all right, well, even the rebuilding teams like Oklahoma City, Orlando, Detroit, Houston, those teams are, they're probably going to be bad record wise, but they're, you can see it now. You can see we're probably only another year or two away from that starting to come to fruition a little bit more of, you know, what are they really going to be? And that's where I, I find a team like Sacramento interesting because by the time they're finally ready to maybe be something and they've caught the Portland's and the Lakers and some of those teams, are they going to have been surpassed by the Oklahoma cities and the rockets and those sorts of teams? And, and are they going to be kind of forever still stuck where, where they were that that's where it gets so hard um, to, to do that. But it is what, you know, that balance, like you said, that's what really, or that redistribution, that's what makes the league you know, really fun right now is because you've got 30 teams that are all, you can kind of look at it there. There's no teams I'm looking at and saying, oh, yeah, they're exactly like this team um, where I really like Major League Baseball. And it felt like they went through a period of time in baseball where you had 25 teams that were being run almost the exact same way. And it got really boring because it was like, I don't want to watch 25 of the same versions of teams. I want to see different teams. That's why I loved Cleveland last year saying, you know what, we're going to play three seven footers because we're going to play three seven footers with two six foot two guards. And we're going to see where it goes. I think that's what makes basketball a lot of fun is when the teams all do uh, take different approaches and different styles, whether it be to their roster, style of play, or whatever it is. That That's when it really uh, becomes in a point where, all right, this is really fun because now I'm seeing something different in every single game and matchup and those kind of things versus watching five teams that are – or you know, 25 teams rather that are built exactly the same and playing the exact same kind of style of basketball. That just gets very boring to me i agree and teams also being emboldened and seeing the success of of the Cavs and, and numerous other ones to say mm-hmm. there are a lot of different ways to succeed i mean the nuggets with Jokic, like that that is a very different approach than we we've seen before and that's a part of what i mean i didn't watch basketball as a kid but a part of what made me gravitate towards it later is that part what makes basketball so fun is that you you will get a lot from your star players but there are a lot of different ways to succeed and a lot of different ways to fail mm-hmm. and if the the more that true to me the more the more things can be tried and i mean we're going to get an awesome test case there with minnesota this year of you know like going going in kind of an extended version of the theory not just because their players are taller but because towns and gobert are both all nba caliber players right now and like that so that's a fundamentally different question and i i'm super excited about that and part of what makes the the upcoming the 22-23 season so much fun is I like to think about a basketball year in phases. And so you have like the early regular season, the mid late regular season, and then you have the playoffs as kind of different different elements. So you have like the early rounds, which can be like the sorting and you get to see how some of these young teams are working out. And then you get into like the real meat of it, like the teams that actually have a shot. And knowing what we know,
know right now, and inevitably injuries will shift this, all of those phases are really fun. Like I always love mm-hmm. the first because the first is figuring out what in the world these teams are and everything else like that. But the playoff races this year are going to be probably very wild. The, I mean, if especially in the West, but in both conferences, like there are going to be some absolutely nasty first round series if things work out the way that we think they do. Like just two really good teams because there are more than four in each conference mm-hmm. going at it and the incentives there and there could be multiple like i mean especially with how the west might be looking and then you get into the later stuff which is always gonna be fun because it's the best of the best going at it and so be all of like that and that's not true every season like i mean that was my my biggest disappointment you could call it of the of the kd warriors years was oftentimes the last phase wasn't that interesting because we kind of one team was way better than everyone else and they didn't win every championship when he was there but i i think this year especially for those of us who are also looking forward at the same time not that you need to to have fun with this year it's going to be a lot to take in yeah they're, they're very i don't even know that there's a single team and it's it's easy to say this here in the beginning of august because i, I already miss it i can't wait for it to come back but there's not a team i'm looking at right now and saying man i just don't really have a lot of interest in watching them anymore um that will come there will be a team you know by the, the trade deadline or something where i'm like yeah there's just not really anything left to learn here i, I don't have a lot of interest in that team but right now even the bad teams they're young they're interesting those teams i'm super excited to see what they grow into there's it does it feels like there's you know five six teams on each side um each conference that are really look like they could be good and really be a team that could make that deep playoff run so i'm I'm absolutely with you on that one i i i i found it very boring i think kind of like you when it was at the beginning of the year all right well we know it's going to be warriors calves in the end so what are we doing all the rest of this for it feels like almost like i know what happens at the end of this movie but you know am i gonna watch all the rest of it and then i almost felt gross because you start rooting for reasons for well maybe something will happen and it won't be that and you on the positive side you start maybe this team will be great that i didn't expect to be this good and they'll overtake one of those two teams but more realistic it's like uh, maybe somebody will turn an ankle in game five of a first round series and then you know it'll become more interesting than what it was going to be and that's i don't ever want to be that way i never want to have that you know looking for interest in that way so i'm glad right now looking at it i'm looking at it and saying yeah you could tell me eight nine ten teams might win the title this year and i might say yeah that's right you'd also tell me on the flip side these eight nine ten teams they could be in the mix for the number and overall pick and i'd be like yeah that could happen too um and that's i think that's a great place for the league to be you know overall health wise and i think that reflects in the fact that people are watching people are going to games it's part of why the cap is going up and all those other things i think all that stuff is uh you know a sign of just how healthy this league is absolutely and i think that's a great place to end it so thank you so much for coming on i appreciate it thank you for having me thanks again to keith smith for taking the time to come on you can read his work at spotrack at celtics blog you can listen or watch the front office show that he does and you can also follow him on twitter at keith smith nba k-e-i-t-h-s-m-i-t-h nba love having him on and as I, I, I believe I alluded to this on the podcast, Keith and I have known each other personally for years. Um, we, I actually was his editor for a couple things when was working on the CBA Encyclopedia project for Real GM. He took over some parts of that project, did a great job, and I was I was editing. Of course, we also were just colleagues there for a really long time, and we've known each other personally for a lot of that as well. So great to put him on the pod. I really enjoyed really enjoyed where it where it went, and I thought it was a very thoughtful conversation. 
If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Really do appreciate that. Helps you find the show. It's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. And then you can also help other people find the show. And that's through leaving a rating or review, through word of mouth, really whatever helps other people find it. Real GM Radio has been around a long time, but it really do appreciate it. And then the most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for us. That is betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and to tell them that you came from us, which benefits us because then they will keep advertising on this fair podcast. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are still doing both Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, and the Spotify live show, which is called Duncan and LaRue. Those will keep going. The big general rule with Spotify is going to be as long as both of us are in the country, we will do it. So there will be a stretch later on in the in the off season where I will be gone. So we'll probably take those weeks off. And then Dunked On, Dunked On Prime is still going to go strong. He's going to get into the 50 division or not division team podcasts with his people i was going into the next thing i was going to promo which is that the division capsule series is what i call it where i typically have two guests on and we go through what happened in a division it looks like that's going to start next week and then that is going to carry through my vacation and that's gonna be and i might sprinkle in some other stuff just depending on how the timing works i'm ironing out the dates and the times of those as this week rolls on So there should be a lot of fun stuff there, great guests, and some really thoughtful conversations. We're running into a little bit of awkwardness due to the prolonged Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell thing. Some people want to push back, and I'm kind of like, well, we're going to have to see. Those things might linger a little bit. So we'll we'll square all that up over the next little bit. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will read it. That is a promise. I will try to respond, but my promise is to read it. That's why it's feedback. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.